The text for this morning will be taken from the first half of Nehemiah 1 verse 8. Nehemiah again is on page 548 of your pew Bible. And the first half we read there, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with this sermon today, we see ourselves at the beginning of a new book, now the beginning of a new sermon series, this one focusing on Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. If I could have a name for this series, I would name it the cupbearer of the king for uh, two reasons, partly because that was his actual uh, position, but this title not only points to Nehemiah in his position as a prominent servant, a trusted servant of the king, but throughout this book we can also see his position as a servant to the king in heaven, the ultimate ruler over everything. It shows that despite his lofty status, he still recognizes who his true king is and recognizes whom he serves, the God of heaven. And as we enter into this first chapter of Nehemiah together, this truly comes to the fore. With his opening words, he establishes his own position before God. He recognizes the position of the nation before the Lord. And he acknowledges the holiness of the God he serves, the depth of his need before this God. And so, we come to the theme, this verse, which is central to not only our passage, but also to the entire book. Remember your word, O Lord. And as we move our way through this chapter, we'll see two things. First, the background of exile. So we'll establish the basis, the background of the entire book, as well as for this particular passage in preparation for moving through this book. And then we'll also focus in on his prayer, a covenantal prayer. For those of you who are new to the book of Nehemiah, you may not know much about the exile. So I'll take a moment to explain the background. The exile was a punishment which Israel was warned about many, many centuries before. When they entered into the land as one nation, God had commanded them that if they rebelled, if they rejected him and his, and his authority as God, as him, the ultimate authority of their lives, they would be taken from this land that he was giving them. They would be besieged, he said. Plague and famine and the sword would destroy them. And after all of that, God would then scatter them among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other to live in exile. Now, this became a reality after over half of a millennium in the promised land. In that time, Israel had rebelled time and time again. The north ended up separating from the south, and so you had two nations in this region, one in the north calling themselves Israel and one in the south calling themselves Judah. The north, which had separated 
in a time of rebellion there, they kept the national name. But they did not keep the faithfulness that was supposed to show who they are as a nation representing the name of the Lord God among all the nations around. And so, in their wickedness and rebellion, it happened. In 722, Israel was invaded. Their wickedness and rebellion had reached its fullness, and then God sent them into exile. Now, despite having seen the consequences of rebellion, despite having seen what happened when people turned against God, when people began serving other gods, gods who demanded them to sacrifice their children on altars of fire, gods who demanded all kinds of wicked acts of them, despite having seen the consequences of that, yet the nation of Judah to the south also ended up carrying on. They also went down the slope this downward grade, further and further into rebellion against God, the God of heaven. And then, in 586, in 586 B.C., they too fell. But despite the fact that they deserved to be wiped out from the face of the earth for their rebellion against God, God still showed his mercy to them. Their punishment would not be without end. Jeremiah prophesied that, yes, they would feel the consequences of God's anger. And they would feel the consequences of God's anger for 70 years. But after 70 years, they would be allowed to return home again. After 70 heart-wrenching years, apart from the people, apart from the land, the covenant land that they were promised, apart from the holy city, apart from that city of God's favor, after 70 years of feeling the righteous anger of God, God would relent. He would have mercy, and he would allow them to return home again. And this is where we find ourselves today. God's anger has relented against the nation of Israel. The people are returning. And yet we find in the opening chapter of Nehemiah, we find him mourning. Why? Why is he so sorrowful? The reason for Nehemiah's sorrow comes from the opening report that is given in this chapter. Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, has just come back from the Holy Land since his homeland is close to his heart, Nehemiah asks for a report. He wants to know what's going on back home. He wants to see how his people are doing. Those who are close to his heart. He holds a special place for them. And so he asks how they are doing. But Hanani and his companions don't have good news. They don't have a good report. We read here, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now, people who look at this, you yourselves maybe, if you're looking at this, you might look at this and say, oh, the gates are burned with fire. 
that must still be a reference to the exile. You know, things, things were pretty bad. But think about this for a second. The exile has happened more than 70 years prior to this. Since that time, some of the people have already begun to return, begun to come home from exile. If we look in the, chapter, uh, in the book of Ezra, which is very closely connected to the book of Nehemiah, in fact, on a side note, the book of Nehemiah is often called Second Ezra, or it was often called Second Ezra, because of how closely it was connected. And so that shows us that we have to look back at Ezra in order to understand what's going on in Nehemiah. But looking back at Ezra, we can see that the temple and the altar have both been rebuilt. People are beginning to settle down again in Jerusalem. In Ezra 9 verse 9, we even read of Ezra saying that God gave the returned people the opportunity to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem, to build a wall. So if we take that into account, and we take into account the resistance that's both faced, uh, that, that the people of Israel, that the people of Judah both face in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah here. It seems that this episode is occurring a long time after the exile. The people were trying to rebuild, but the leaders from the surrounding nations were giving opposition. They weren't happy with the slow return of Judah to a position of strength. They would rather have weak neighbors, and so they are actively seeking to undermine the work that's being done in Judah within the borders of Jerusalem, the holy city. And so it seems that at this point in time, they had tried to rebuild to a certain extent, but they just did not have enough people. And so the walls were knocked down and the gates were burned. Fierce opposition faced these people, and many of them would have felt that it was their own fault. You might ask, okay, why would they feel that it's their own fault? Well, these people, after they had come back from exile, they'd felt the graciousness of God. They had seen his favor in allowing them to return. Some of them moved into the countryside. Others moved into the city of Jerusalem as well. And they had begun well. Under Ezra, many reforms had been put in place. Like we saw before, the temple had been built. The altar had been consecrated. They had some semblance of the priesthood going again. Feasts were being celebrated for the very first time in a very long time. And yet, the people still rebelled. As the book of Ezra draws to a close, we read, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. They were carrying on in the same steps as the people before the exile. And in addition to this, he writes that they had taken some of the people from the surrounding pagan nations as wives in direct rebellion against the command of God. This is why they felt that it would have been their fault. They had seen their sin heaping up in the eyes of the Lord, and now they felt that they would have felt that they were receiving 
punishment from the Lord. Now, before we heap up condemnation on the people in Judah, on the people of God, brothers and sisters, I want to take a step back for a moment. There's a a suggestion that I heard not too long ago that's quite fitting for this situation. And there they say that whenever you see the name of Israel or Judah in the Old Testament, try putting your own name in. Because your own rebellion is not too different. And there's not a lot, there, there is a lot of truth to that statement. Consider your own life for a moment. God has laid claim to it. Now, depending on your situation, he has laid claim to it in two different ways. In the very first, it will be in a very similar way to the way that he laid claim to the people of Israel. In the first, for you who are believing members of this congregation, God has laid claim to your life. You were bound in slavery to sin. You had sin as your master, and you were under the power of the devil. Yet God, God ransomed you. When Jesus Christ came down in the flesh, he suffered and he died for you. He ransomed you, body and soul, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And he had freed you from the power of the devil to make you his own possession. It's a beautiful thing. This is why you call him your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, because you belong to him. He is your Lord. And he has laid claim to your life. God has laid claim to your life. For those of you who don't believe, this claim of lordship is still there over your life. Why? Because God is still the king and ruler over this universe. He is the creator of all things, including you. You may think that you are autonomous. You may think you're independent. But you were created. And he continues to uphold you. Every breath that you receive is still grace from him. Every step you take is his grace, granting you a chance to recognize his lordship. You no more govern yourself than a pot can be governed by itself. The pot can't say to the potter, I'm independent. No, the potter, by making the pot, lays claim to it. It becomes his. Same with someone who's making a painting. The artist, when he's making a painting, the painting doesn't simply declare its liberation. No, the painting belongs to the artist because he made it. Likewise, we were created. The very fact that he has made you shows that he has the authority to claim ownership over your life. God has laid claim to your life too. So whatever our situation is, whether we believe or whether we are not, God has claimed lordship over our lives. And for those who believe, you receive a double blessing. For you live in a new freedom that's been granted to you. The way to the promised land has been opened to you. And yet, 
we still rebel. Each of us has areas in our lives which we hold out. Areas where we think, I don't really want to give that up. Or, that would really push me outside my comfort zone. Each of us has areas in our lives where we think, well, God wouldn't really hold this against me. He understands my position. A lot of those would have been the same thoughts that were running through the hearts of the Israelites. Despite all of the grace that is poured out over our lives, despite the gift of the new perspective on life that we're granted, a new family that we're granted in the people of this congregation, a Savior who literally gave his life for us, yet we still rebel. We still hold out. And so when we are looking at the words, when we are looking at the acts of the nation of Israel coming up to this point, we do not dare condemn them. We don't dare come down upon them like a ton of bricks saying, how is it possible that those people could do that? Because we ourselves, when we look at our lives, are in the same position. We would be better to ask, how can we rebel before a God who's already so good to us? God, you have been caring, loving, and gracious. How is it possible that you don't cast me down here and now and crush me under your feet? Because that is what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But Lord, you haven't. And that is all the more evidence of your grace. You are good and kind, much more than I deserve. Thank you, Lord. For some of those of you who aren't completely familiar with the gospel message, and even for those of you who are, you might be thinking right now, now, how is it possible? You said all of this, but how is it possible that we can stand right before God? To answer that, let's take a second to dive into Nehemiah's prayer. Once we've done that, things will hopefully begin to make more sense. Now consider the man, Nehemiah, before his prayer for a moment. Nehemiah is a man who's at the height of his career. As a cupbearer to the king, he is someone who is trusted, dear to the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that point in time. Yet we see in verse 4 that he weeps and mourns, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he doesn't just pray. He doesn't just offer up a one-time prayer and think, that's okay, I'll leave it at that for now. But he besieges the gates of heaven with prayer. He mourns for days on end, fasting and praying. Now, as a high official in the king's court, he would have had many duties to carry out from day to day. So he would not have necessarily been on his knees the entire time. But in his heart, he was ever before the throne of grace, begging and pleading with God. Many of you may have heard the term the phrase from Philippians, to pray without ceasing, well, this was what Nehemiah was carrying out. He was an example of someone who began his work in prayer, continues in prayer, and then ends in prayer. And you can see this in the entire book of Nehemiah as well. It's drenched in prayer from beginning to end. Now, at this point in time, it might be easy to put Nehemiah up on a pedestal after we hear this, 
And some people do this. They say, look how great Nehemiah is. Look how great he was at praying. You should do that too. Spend every hour of the day in prayer. They might even point to his success as having risen to a high level of a government position and use that as proof of his ability to pray. But that would be missing the point entirely. This book wasn't written to elevate the name of Nehemiah, but to elevate the name of God. And this becomes eminently clear in Nehemiah's prayer. So let's turn to it. Nehemiah prays in verse 5. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel. Your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Now, I want you to notice three things as we go into this prayer. First of all, Nehemiah doesn't immediately launch into his request. This is an overarching thing that we can look at when we're looking at this prayer. He doesn't immediately launch into a laundry list of items for God to fulfill for him. And you might think, okay, well, why is that the case? Because didn't you just hear Nehemiah? The gates have been burned. The wall has been knocked down. Why are you spending time on this when you should be asking God to defeat the nations around? You should be asking God to wipe them out so that Israel can grow and flourish. Why are you spending time on this, Nehemiah? But he doesn't dive right into this laundry list of items. Because he recognizes his position before God. He recognizes his weakness before God. He recognizes the fact that he does not have the right to come before God in this way. And so, he first gives glory to God. Now, sometimes we fall into this trap Coming before God, we don't take the time to speak with him. Prayer is no longer a conversation with God, but it's a list of demands for God. We need to be careful not to fall into this kind of a trap. The next point I'd like to look at is, uh, is more, uh, deals more specifically with the prayer itself. So the first part of Nehemiah's prayer shows his relationship to God, his recognition of who God is. And then the uh, second point carries on from that. So the first part of Nehemiah's prayer, we find, is similar to the Lord's Prayer. It's similar to the Lord's Prayer in that uh, he says, he, he brings immediate glory to God's name first. When Christ taught us to pray, he says, Our Father in heaven, in heaven, recognizing the fact that God is in heaven, teaching ourselves not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. So Nehemiah recognizes that he's not coming before the gods of the nations. He's not coming before another God that can be manipulated by throwing money at the altar, that can be manipulated by throwing food 
down before it, that you can twist his arm if you pray enough times. No, he is a God whose hand can't be forced. He is far above us in power and majesty. He is a great and an awesome God. It's appropriate for believers to approach God in this way. We recognize that he is all-powerful and that he is God. And because he is the great and awesome God, on that point alone, he is worthy of worship. But it doesn't stop there. Nehemiah also points out the personal relationship that God has with his people. He draws God's attention to his covenant promises. God is not just the God who is in control of the universe, but he's drawn himself into a special relationship with his people. In fact, it's on this basis that his people are able to draw near to him at all. God is so holy that he can't stand the sight of sin even for a moment. But he has chosen to come into relationship with his people, to allow them to draw near. He has given the opportunity to purify themselves through the sacrifices, through the other ceremonies of the law. He's opened the way to heaven that his people can call upon him. God himself, this is, a, this is what Nehemiah is showing recognition of. God himself has taken that first step. God himself has bridged that gap. He's bridged the divide between himself and man. And it's only by his mercy that we can relate to him. The second thing that Nehemiah prays about, and this is the third point that I'd like you to notice about these words, is the sin of himself and the people. He's putting himself in his place as he approaches God. He recognizes that neither he nor the people of Israel can demand anything from God. They have no right to anything from God. He doesn't limit this to the people of God either in a general sense, like we so often do. But he takes personal responsibility for his actions, his own contribution. He recognizes that God owes him nothing. He elaborates. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Now he doesn't bring up anything specific in this written version of the prayer, confessing his own sin or confessing the people of Israel's sin. Perhaps he did when he was praying day and night bringing up one thing after another. But the point is, what he's bringing forward in this small section is that whether he and Israel have sinned against one portion of the law or against more than one portion of the law, they are guilty. They have broken God's law. And then comes a key word. A word which comes back again and again in the book of Nehemiah. A word which takes our focus away from ourselves and places our focus where it belongs, on our God in heaven. He says, remember. Remember. 
This is the basis of his request. This is the foundation from which he prays. He says, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He's saying, we recognize our wrong. We recognize our wickedness before God, and we see that this is a consequence of it, O Lord. We remember that part of your word too. But then he brings up the second part of what God has promised. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There. That is the key. It's not on the basis of what I have done. It's not on the basis of what Nehemiah has done. It's on the basis of God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy. And so he carries on. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper. He's saying, Lord, you have redeemed us. You've redeemed us now. You promised that if we repented and turned to you, you would hear us and you would embrace us. Please listen. Listen, Lord, and hold to that promise. Let your servant prosper this day. And then he brings up his request. And grant him mercy, your servant mercy. So this is Nehemiah praying. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? He brings that up in the very next line. For I was the king's cupbearer. So the man is the king. He's reached a point now. This final line shows the thought which finally dawned on Nehemiah. That he himself needs to approach the king. He needs to come before the king. He must take action. And so he asks God to give him aid in this. Now, brothers and sisters, this brings us to where we are today. We don't enter this book looking at Nehemiah as an example. The book of Nehemiah, although his name is right there on the title, his name is what we recognize when we think about the book. The man is who we recognize, but we don't come here to put him on a pedestal. Rather, we enter this new book being once again reminded of the depth of our own need. Because we recognize that nothing that our hands have done can save our guilty souls. All of our works, all of the things we do, can do nothing to make our spirits whole. If we try to rest on our works, that won't work. So sometimes people try to slide over to their emotions. But Nothing we do, nothing even that we can feel can give us peace with God. Nothing. Our tears, our wails, our sorrowing can't bear the load that we bear. We deserve death. 
Again, we have that passage, for the wages of sin is death. And we recognize that. We must recognize that. Some of you may feel the weight of this on yourselves. You recognize that what you have in yourselves isn't just a minor flaw in your character. What you have in yourselves isn't just something that's not a big deal. It's wickedness. When you disobey God, it's not just a minor flaw, it's rebellion. And you're before a holy God and you cannot stand. Now, whether you are a longtime believer or you are someone who is new to the faith, I want you to listen carefully to this next part, this part that's brought so clearly to us by the book of Nehemiah. There is a way out. There is a path to freedom. Nehemiah speaks about this in the promises of God. He says, if you repent, if you turn, if you return to me, then I'll gather you in. And for us, we have seen this come to its fullness in Jesus Christ. And we see this coming over again and again in the New Testament. Repent and believe. There is a way out. However heavy this burden might weigh on you, there is a way out. That if you repent, you believe and you come before the Lord, you turn away from your sin and daily put it behind you. You come to God and say, I have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commands. And so remember, I pray, the words which you promised so long ago. Remember the words that God promised so long ago that we find redemption through his son. We can pray, you are the almighty God who's able to do all things. You are the covenant God, the one who established a relationship with us. And you made this firm through the sacrifice of your son. By your son, bridge this gap. Forgive me for my sins, bridge this gap. By your son, you allow us to draw near. And so, Father, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of who you are, on the basis of your word, what you have told us, remember on the basis of Jesus Christ who died for me. Forgive me and let me draw near. God who has spoken is not a God who forgets. He is a God who is faithful, a God who remembers. You can be sure that if you ask forgiveness and you turn to him in faith, he will hear. Our God who is faithful will hear. And then we can see in the words of the famous hymn that thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to, thee, to thee, does rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Amen. Amen.